What would you do with more white space? Or how crowded is your calendar? How much wiggle room do you have to maneuver your tasks, projects, and meetings every week? My guest this week shares how we can carve out the space we need to unleash our creative potential. This is the 5AM Miracle, episode number 405. Conquer busyness and do your best work with Juliet Funt. Good morning, I am Jeff Sanders, and this is the podcast dedicated to dominating your day before breakfast. My guest today is a renowned keynote speaker and tough love advisor to the Fortune 500, who is frequently featured in top global media outlets, including Forbes and Fast Company. She is the founder and CEO of the Juliet Fund Group, which helps business leaders and organizations to unleash their full potential by unburdening talent from busy work. Her new book is A Minute to Think, Reclaim Creativity, Conquer Busyness, and Do Your Best Work. And now here is my interview with Juliet Funt. So before we dig into the book this week, I want to first back up just a minute and talk a little bit more about you and the work that you do today. So can you give our audience a sense of what you're all about? Yes, our mission is to return space to the day, to oxygenating interstitial open time in between all the busy stuff that we do, because when it's in there, people are smarter, they're more creative, they're more relaxed, work feels more sane and efficient. And so that's the mission is to return this element. We do that through productivity training and leadership consulting and a bunch of other work. But the end goal is for everybody to just be able to take a minute when they need one. Yes, which brings us right to the book, which is, that's a good segue there. (laughs) Uh, Your book is called A Minute to Think, Reclaim Creativity, Conquer Busyness, and Do Your Best Work. Um, Those are all topics for this podcast that fit really well. I love to discuss anything related to, well, not just getting things done, but getting things done the right way. And I think you've got an interesting perspective here on on taking a break, so to speak. I mean, my latest book was called The Free Time Formula, which Mm -hmm. I think we have a lot in common Mm -hmm. in terms of those same connections of what it means to take a break, to pause. Uh, So let's just go with that angle of the book's title, A Minute to Think. Why do we need a minute to think and what is included in that minute? Oh, it's so much. There's so many angles. There's So there's the neurological angle. There's the financial angle. There's a creativity angle. Our brains need a minute to reboot the cognitive processes that we're attempting to do great work with. So from a science angle, we can start there to say that you you know, you know, have high achievers, I'm sure a lot of them lift weights. You do a set of 15, you take a pause. You do a set of 50. You don't do a set of 150. You don't do a set of 5,000, mm-hmm. which is what we do in the work week. There are moments interstitially where recovery is part of the formula. And if you did look inside the mind during those recovery pauses, you'd see you, you'd see spectacular activity that it links to insight and introspection and creativity, all in what might look like a human being sitting still. And so we begin with the fact that if you look at high achievers' natural predisposition to favor activity over true productivity, we see that the pause is also really necessary to align us with what really deserves our attention, not just checking boxes and doing more and achieving quantity of tasks, but actually making sure through the space, through taking time to be thoughtful and reflective, that each action we take is in the direction of the goals that we care the most about. 
So if we have a minute to think, if we have a, a pause in our day, I know that my tendency tends to be on things that I think you mentioned this in your book, a nice little diagram of we tend to do things like listen to podcasts, we might watch Netflix, we might distract ourselves right. with activity, right? We it, These pauses aren't pauses at all, really. They're just more things to do in a different area of life. Uh, what does a pause look like if it's done in a way that that serves us, that actually does lean towards you know our brain health, that leads towards more creativity? Like, is this a, a, an intentional time being used in a different way? I'm assuming. So, what what do we do there? It, it is different, and and that graphic you're referring to, it helps you understand that we're talking about recuperative pausing right now. Kind of, we're sort of noodling around the idea of it as a rest, break, recuperation. That's only one of four ways that we have found space to be foundational at work. So we can cover later uh, reflecting, reflective pausing, stepping back, constructive pausing, the ability to really hatch new ideas and products, and something called reductive pausing, which we can get to if we have time. So it's very important to understand that when we do it rest is only one of a menu of reasons we're doing it for. We're trying to make everything we do at work more thoughtful. When we stop, the goal is to create actual white space. And that's the term that we use in the book defined as time without an assignment, time that is actually open and undirected and improvisational where you could stare out a window or you could close your eyes or you could noodle on a project or you could have an emotion. And those moments of being uh, present to the things that we need to feel or think or do then allow us to go back more focused in the next moment. So it's really hard for high achievers to do this in the beginning. You're going to take a pause and then you're going to reach for your phone probably. And then if you think you're not supposed <laughs> to reach for your phone, then you'll sit there and there will be this moment where you have just no idea what it is supposed to feel like. But your mind knows that when it starts to get some of this... It's like oxygenating a fire where you made a fire that was packed too densely and it just won't ignite and it won't ignite. And then, oh my, you teepee the wood and wow, suddenly there's this differentness that can come in. So we, I can walk you through if, if you want kind of some baby steps. It's definitely a, an acquired practice, but one that you know we've seen amazing results from. Oh, sure. Let's do it. I think I think if you're going to start right from scratch, the most important place is to begin in bed, which means that when you open your eyes, possibly the most important minute of white space is after you wake up and before you get up. It's just this lovely container in which you can say, how do I want to show up today? What am I going to contribute? What's most important? What don't I want to miss? Any questions that you can ask yourself that center yourself and then as you move into work, the training wheels tool to begin using what we call white space. I should say, by the way, that the name is white because coaching executives looking at their calendars for years and years and years, you'd look, you would look at the page and you'd actually be looking for where's the white? Is there any actual white on here or is it just <laughs> meeting after project after meeting? Um, the baby step tool is called the wedge. And if you imagine my fingers are touching each other like a church steeple, like a wedge going up, we want to insert small bits of time. They could be tiny or medium or larger in between activities that previously would have been connected. We're wedging apart the seamless fast forward busyness of the day between a meeting and a meeting, between a question and an answer, between a request from a client and what you write back, 
all these places where reactivity would have been our badge of honor, how fast we can react, want to just insert these little wedges of thoughtfulness. It's probably the, the best place to start and it will allow them to gently work up to longer stretches. That kind of reminds me, and speaking of this idea of the, the question answer thing you just mentioned of, of trying to create space. I was talking to someone recently who was, who was challenging me to pause before I would speak and just take a moment to think and actually mm. respond to someone actively as opposed to like while someone's speaking, you're already thinking of your next thing to say. And you know, as someone who does a lot of interviews here in this podcast, that's all I'm ever doing. And I feel like there is such an interesting, an interesting dynamic if you give yourself the chance to actually pause that I never do. Like I'm the, you know, type A, high caffeinated, doing things, all the things you're talking that should not be doing. Like that's, I'm that guy not doing these things correctly. So like from that perspective, and I know a lot of my listeners feel the same way. How do we have more of that proactive nature of the thoughtfulness of carving these wedges in? Because I feel like there's going to be some friction there because we, we, I don't want to, don't know how to. Like, I think there's probably a mental block there to kind of overcome. Sure. So I should just say that I am I am you as well. That's why I've been interested in this work for <laughs> 20 years. I if you if you didn't give me any of these tools, I would be a tech addicted workaholic, go go, born in Manhattan gal, and I, that. So there, um, the reason I am so moved when I see individual people begin to have space is because I deeply identify with the before picture of what that feels like. But people who are running at that level, they either hit a wall, and sadly, I'm, I don't wanna generalize, but a lot of times for men, they have to have a tragedy. There's some financial hit, a divorce, uh, a health impact. I can't tell you how many times someone came to our work and said, I had a heart attack a year ago, or there was an innovation department where they had three strokes in the same year in a, a, a clothing company. So. Sometimes we have to hit that wall <clears throat> to realize we need space, but hopefully not. Hopefully we come to it to realize that like a fire, every one of your listeners has a spark that is what they're proud of. It is the unique contribution, the talent, the effort. Now, if they work in an entrepreneurial environment, they might have some room for that spark. But if they work in a company, likely they walk in every day and they are avalanched on by all sorts of waste work, by emails and meetings and decks and CCs and garbage that shouldn't be there. And that spark is perennially extinguished for them. So there are a lot of different reasons why we want to do this work. The science proves it. The tallying of the waste at work proves it. It is difficult for high achievers to buy it. And I, I don't think that that's... Um, in any way unusual, but anecdotally and numerically, we see that when teams and people adopt more space, their results are simply higher. They have more time to be strategic. They have less emails and meetings because they're thoughtful about who they invite and who they send to. And and probably more, more importantly, work doesn't have to be the hardest part of life anymore. They just this really intense quality of what I call tolerated misery that these people pushing through are experiencing, maybe a little less on the entrepreneurial side, but um, many, many times getting to the end of a day where they did give their best and they just look up and say, what what did I even do today? 
Yeah, I know that feeling very well, actually. <laughs> I've had many of those days. And to your point about, you know, men needing a tragedy, I mean, that's my, that's my story. You know, I was in the hospital four years ago with a, a panic attack that, you know, mm. didn't kill me, but it, it felt like it was going to. And that was that was my wake up call. You know, that's why I and in many ways I shifted my messaging on this show because right. I, I needed that moment as well. And I feel like there is, yeah, such a that's a really good like, way to describe this idea that we need to hit this wall sometimes if that's what's required. And I guess from that perspective, let's say someone has, they've had a, a wake up call and, and they're ready to make that change. You know, one of the things that I'm hearing with this, uh, a minute to think or having space is that we're going to be kind of adding time in our day because we we'll need to take time to pause. And the first kind of, you know, my, my brain says, well, wait a minute, if I take time out of my day to, to pause, that's time I'm not doing work. <laughs> and there's this kind of desire to say, like, well, then where does that work go? When does it get done? Great question. Right. If there's this like where where's all the work going? And so I guess my question would be, like, how do we where where's it go? Yeah. Yeah. Think of the design. There's an AA phrase that says, if you want what they have, do what they do. So think of the design of a person that your high achievers really look toward. Let's say. Bill Gates, Jack Welch, Jeff Weiner, Phil Knight, these are all examples in the book of people who took thinking as the most important kind of work you can do. Bill Gates used to go off for two weeks a year for his think weeks, and Phil Knight of Nike had a chair that was in his living room, and it was designated only for daydreaming, and the only thing that he did in that chair was daydream. So you said to me, where does work go when you find time to take a minute to think? And think about the the, the undercurrent of that question is that thinking is not work and doesn't have value. But we mm. didn't used to have that relationship with thoughtfulness. In the old days, I don't know how old, you if you saw your boss staring out a window, you knew, oh, that's the golden hour where they're dreaming, cooking, concocting the future of the company, and you'd be very quiet and sneak out. Now, if you see anyone whose body isn't moving, you assault them with what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you working on? What are you working on? What are you working on? So let's just start with that. But secondarily, the pause itself reduces unnecessary touch points and it allows there to be more time in the day. That was that fourth way I mentioned I said we'll get back to called being reductive with the pause. So sometimes when you have a little pause, what you're doing is you're looking at all the things you're touching and you're saying, which of these should I actually be doing and which of them should I be letting go of? Or if you work in a corporation, you're looking at the meetings you attend, the emails you answer, the stupid CCs that clog up your entire life and saying, if we stop this tide, then there is naturally more time and space. The more spacious a company is, the more they are lucid when waste is on their desk. And I'm an entrepreneur, I grew up as a solopreneur and I get the feeling of, I wanna do everything. I wanna have a blog and I wanna have a podcast and I wanna, ha I wanna do every single project that occurs to me. But unless we let go of some, we can never shine that helpful spotlight on the, the winners, the ones that really deserve our attention. So your basic premise of where do we push work when we take a minute, I would actually say to you that taking a minute makes work smaller makes work more manageable. What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with my sponsor, Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. 
Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Finally achieve your new language goal in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me to learn real-life conversation skills in German, including ordering food and asking for directions without having to rely on language apps while traveling. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Now, here's a special limited-time deal for my listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for my listeners at babbel.com slash 5am. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash 5am, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash 5am. Rules and restrictions may apply. Yeah, I like that. I, mean, I love the idea of letting things go because I feel like, yeah, that is the only way forward in that sense. So from that perspective, how do you know what to let go of? How do you know what work matters and what work doesn't? I mean, in the world where it really feels like everything is urgent, everything matters that, you know, I have to move at a thousand miles an hour every day. Like, how do we make that shift then to being able to recognize and really filter out those things that we can let go? Yeah. We, we want to get to know uh, a group of drivers that are pushing us over the busyness cliff. And once we have objectivity over them, we can begin to control them. So in the book, we call them the thieves of time. The irony of this piece of teaching is that when we studied busyness, we found four things that made everybody busy, but they were actually good things that had simply overgrown. They weren't really negative. So the thieves are drive, excellence, information, and activity. And all you wouldn't hire anyone who wasn't driven and excellent and informed and active, but when they overgrow, drive becomes overdrive and excellence becomes perfectionism, information becomes information overload, and our sense of activity just turns into frenzy. And so the place to start when you're asking, how do I know what to let go of, is to begin to identify the thieves in your day. Each of us has a different personality predisposition. I'm an excellence person. I'm a nutcase perfectionist if left to my own devices. You, I'm sure a lot of your listeners are drive folks who want to climb a hill and climb the next and plan nine projects in the same day and get up <laughs> at 5 a.m. and do all that good stuff. So once we begin to have this new way of thinking, we can be going through our day saying, oh, I just noticed that I was fighting with a bullet point in a document for 30 minutes to make it perfect and it's autocorrect dodging me the whole time. Oh, maybe that's the thief of excellence and maybe that's not tactically necess ne necessary. Or when you look at a to-do list, some little part of you, once you understand that the thief of drive is part of your reality, could notice that there's, you just gave your assistant seven different things with absolutely no indication of which ones were the most important. So as we become objective about the thieves, we begin to have power over them. And then in our world, we would flip to a piece of content called the simplification questions. Each thief has one question which disarms it. So we're not going to have time for all four, but I'll just give you an example of the thief of information. We all want to know everything and listen to every podcast and be on every channel and get all our notifications. The question that disarms that thief is, what do I truly need to know? And as you sit with it and as you try it on in a million different 
sizes and portions and angles, you get more and more aware that many of the things that we're drinking in that fire hose of information are not things that we truly need to know. They're habitual or they're recreational or someone assigned them to us. And so our process of determining is spot a thief and then ask a question. And that's kind of the, the formula that we use. Yeah, I like that idea of the information, like what I need to know. I had an epiphany of that a few weeks ago, actually. Um, I had a news app on my phone mm. that I knew was distracting me. I deleted it and I replaced it in the exact same location of my phone with the Calm app. <laughs> and great. The, the irony is I didn't even use the Calm app for a few weeks. I just would look at it and feel better because I knew I was not looking at the news. And right. it was this like epiphany in my head that's like, I can't be in this you know mental space all the time where I'm just needing that next you know head of dopamine and, and the next thing that's happening. I just need to calm down, which I feel like is such a, a big breakthrough for me personally. But to your point, I think figuring out what we need to know is such a, a beautiful thing and knowing how to spot those thieves and to move forward. I, I guess my question now would be, let's imagine we have a day where we're spotting those thieves we're getting better at this. Is there a set of like daily habits that we're we're bringing in to, I mean, to constantly grow the skill set to to make these things better or to to get to a point where this feels natural? Like, what does a day look like for someone who has these minutes to pause kind of built in? It's not as different as you're going to think. It is simply if you if you have I'm imagining audio editing. If you just open, you know how they open up a file. Maybe your listeners don't know, but when you edit audio, you have all the sounds that are very very close together, and then you expand and expand and expand them so you see these little spaces in between. My day, I, I think, would be a good example of someone who's predisposed to be nutcase busy, but has used these tools for twenty years. My day is not filled with ponderous languid staring out the window but it has a sanity and a cadence to it where something hard happens i stop to take it in an idea occurs to me i might lean back for 30 seconds to give it a chance or i'm about to do something like a meeting or a sales call or something important and i'll take a minute or two to vision how i want it to look or think about what's really important with my children i try to under schedule our family to the best degree that I can. So there's lots of beautiful fluid space for improvisation and connection to show up. It it doesn't need to be um, a parody of itself where you're staring off all day. It is literally like a fire that just needs a little oxygen. So from that perspective, I, I love the idea of under scheduling. I think that's, been, that's a great strategy to apply. And I'm wondering what, yeah, what does your calendar look like? How are you able to, like, you know, you've got a meeting here, you've got a project here, but how are you kind of arranging that puzzle, so to speak, of a calendar to figure out how to make sure white space kind of, you know, takes precedent when it needs to? Yeah, the most important one right now, I mean, we have to triage the time in life that we're talking. This moment, the Zoom uh, a holic world that we've been living in. If we don't start putting some white slices in between those meetings, people are just going to just fall over. They are falling over. 52% of people are officially burnt out. So I would say that we begin by never letting the color touch the color on the calendar. That's the first rule. Five hmm. minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes in between. Now, you have a lot of driven people. So let me also talk about the tactical use of it. It's not just recuperation. Let's say you have a salesperson who has 10 minutes of white in between every single meeting. Let me play you two scenarios of what their life could look like. Scenario A is without the white. 
they're maybe they're one of these um you know real rainmaker very experienced they could get on the call one minute to the top of the hour and ace it so they think but if they had 10 minutes to first recuperate their body or get a drink or a bio break and then come back and think all right i'm about to talk to ted what does ted care about again who is ted was there a personal thing we brought up last time do I need to change the way that I'm gonna to talk to him because of who Ted is? What is my goal in this call? How do I wanna show up? There's so many things that those meet, interstitial meeting slices are for besides rest. They get you to walk in the door prepared for what you do. So in a professional environment, the rule is never let the color touch the color. The next thing that I would suggest is moving toward a zero notification policy if you can especially, I don't even know what they call it, that little bar that pops up when the email comes in and it says, you have an email, you have an email, you have an email, you have So if you are a white space person, what you want is a phone or a computer system where you are the boss and you pull content from anywhere you want it when you feel like it, not when it taps you on the shoulder because an app developer told someone it would be more effective to do that. And when you have that quiet, and when you have those spaces between meetings, work starts to feel different, then maybe you add a layer where you begin interval checking your emails. So you're not touching it every single minute, but you have some sort of cadence that's pre-described. And this is the ladder that we're walking from, just playing with the general idea of space to systematizing the idea of space. Yeah, I think along the same lines of checking your email less often, it feels like we're moving from a, a world of reactivity to one of much more intentionality. I know that you know I've made similar shifts in the way that I, I take my day in. And I uh, one of the things I've done on my phone in terms of notifications is the only thing now that dings on my phone is baseball game updates. Yeah. It's intentional because I don't even care about baseball that much. But I to me, it's like if my phone's going to ding for anything, it should be fun mm -hmm. and not something that's going to stress me out. And I have found this summer, especially that to be a really interesting way to have a notification. It's just like, oh, the baseball score. OK, great. And it's something it's a new way for me, at least, to think about my time. And if I'm going to get alerted, it may as well be fun. <laughs> I feel like that's for me a, a new way to approach my, my work and my day. It's lovely. And the whole point of work is to do things of meaning and then get to be done and go home. And so if we take this lens, it's like you don't get LASIK surgery for work and then have blurry eyes at home. You take a lens and you put it in front of your eyes. And now spaciousness is your default. You can go home and you can uh, schedule your children less. You can let go of, you know, why are we driving to this retirement party for 30 minutes for someone that we marginally like because we don't know how to say no to things and let go of the dishes in favor of a present Scrabble game and all these moments where having the unscheduled time and the improvisational space starts to be more important than dominating the 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 run of quantity that that uh, false god of quantity that we then we bring home with us and unfortunately we teach it to our children as well i mean from that same perspective there of, of saying no to things how do you say no because i feel like there are so many people myself included that you know we are in a habit of saying yes to so many things or we're, we're we are right now over committed like mm -hmm. how do we get under committed how do we make that shift to being able to to confidently turn someone down Yes, it's not, we first, we don't undervalue how authentically difficult that is. And I like to advocate finding a nobody, which is a friend or a partner that you can practice a no with to see if you're on the right track. You sometimes need another person 
to say, let's say declining a meeting. Very simple. You've been going to this meeting every week. It's absolutely so boring. You sit in the back and you play hangman on a legal pad, but you just don't know <laughs> how to say, I don't think I should be sitting here every week. Because it's, it's authentically scary. And people know that leaders are not always evolved who will hear that, that decline. So you find a nobody and you just kind of bounce it off of each other. Number one, does this feel like the right thing to do to say this no? And then very specifically, what's the language? If you get the language right, you're empowered to do no differently. And that might mean actually writing it out or rehearsing it or practicing a certain kind of language, easier in an email, because of course you can massage it. But I think that one critical switch to flip is that people should never ever feel ashamed about rehearsing a no and never ever give themselves a message that it's some sort of remedial or odd practice. It's what it makes every communicator in the world better is to be prepared. So you get your nobody, you start kind of thinking through it. And then you might want to try what we call the no sandwich, which is to sandwich the no in between two gracious comments of any kind. So this could be um, your aunt says, can you come over? Well, your aunt, your little aunt, you're going to say no to, but yes to. So let's say your boss, your boss says, um, and boss can be the hardest no. So maybe we'll start right there at the hardest one. The boss says, I, I want you to take on this new project. And you know that you're already maxed out. You're going to find some way to question that assignment, but you have to do it between two slices of graciousness. Here's how that can look. Dear big shot boss, uh, thank you so much for thinking of me for this assignment. Or I'm so glad that we have this exciting project to do together. Now, you're going to say no in the middle. I've, I've accidentally jumped to the very hardest no here. But when you're saying no to your boss, the critical word that you want to make sure that you get in the sentence is which. What you're doing is you're saying to your boss, my bandwidth is not infinite and I need to make a choice. Can you help me make that choice and say no to something? And so the way the sentence sounds like is which of the several or many or seven assignments you've given me this week is the one you'd like me to do first or the one with the highest priority or the ones that remain on the list for this week. So that which is a subtle and delicate way of saying no. And then you get back to a slice of graciousness. Um, I look forward to working with you on this project. So once you've had your no buddy and a little bit of rehearsal and maybe you've sandwiched that no into two better feeling things, you might you might have a little more facility with it. There's a, We have in the book a whole bunch of different what we call refusal strategies, which are actually the language. But one of the simplest ones is just, can I take 24 hours and get back to you? Which isn't the no, but it's the setup for you to then go back and be thoughtful and relax and break the interpersonal intimidation and actually think. Fast forward to the end of 2024 and think about your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should check out my sponsor, Babbel. Finally achieve your new language goal in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold, and studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me to learn real-life conversation skills in German, including ordering food and asking for directions, 
without having to rely on language apps while traveling. Now, here's a special limited-time deal for my listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for my listeners at babbel.com slash 5am. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash 5am, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash 5am. Rules and restrictions may apply. Yeah, that space to, to think about how to say no is really powerful. I spend a lot of time in email saying no, and it takes a long time mm. to, to word it correctly. Um, and to, to your example there about the boss, I, mean, I had a very similar like personal story with that where in my last job, I had the scenario where I had a 40-hour-week job. I was not allowed to have overtime, and yet I was given way more work than you could do in 40 hours. Yeah. So I had to have those same conversations of, well, then which do I choose, right? Yeah. How, Which of these things that I have on my plate am I allowed to do during the time I'm here? Because otherwise, I'm going to get fired for doing things that I thought was important that you did not. And like it was that's messy. And I think you know, clarifying that, I mean, that's that's everything when it comes to figuring out how to figure out what your boss wants. But uh, you probably have some bosses on this uh, listenership as well. They're, it's very important to help people understand with a big fat spotlight what deserves their attention. And when you are looking at your own to-do list, people will have a tendency to start at the top and just try to do one and then the next and then the next and then the next rather than scan and with a highlighter or a bold or their own mind to say, oh, I see two. I see two that are jumping out at me that have more tactical gold in them than the others. That's where I focus my attention. You can sometimes do it for yourself, but if you have someone on the uh, who's listening who is assigning work, do that for your people. When you give them a download, just help them with either a visual or verbal cue to say, by the way, numbers two and six are where you want your energy. And we do much too little of this. And, and if you're in the experience of someone who is assigned work, you might be really surprised how absolutely lost they often are at how to order the importance of things because nobody's telling them. So they just try to do everything in the same intensity and the same speed. I feel like that's everyone's story. I mean, to a certain degree, it's like everything is number one all right, the time. Right. And, and I feel like that that idea is just like, well, then how? What's number two? Is anything number two? And I that's the, I think that's my struggle. Oftentimes, I mean, I'm a solopreneur. Like I've I have to make my own decisions every day. Mm-hmm. And from that perspective, it's that's my biggest challenge personally every day is making the cuts and really saying today I'm not going to do these things. Here's the no list for yep. today. Yeah. And that is so much more challenging than anything else I do every single day is telling my self no. And I feel like that, w- once that's established, though, the day is so much easier. And it's getting myself to get to that point where I've allowed myself to only do a few things. But that's, I mean, that's I mean, years in the making of practicing that to get good at it. And I'm still struggling through it because I feel like knowing my tendencies, you know, that's my biggest area of growth, really. But you're struggling in a human way where it's not a cure, it's a regimen. It's like flossing. And we don't cure our teeth of tartar by reading the right book. We do something on a regular basis that continues to keep them healthy. And that is the same kind of cleaning of your schedule that you're doing. I would say that one of the the kind of the flip side of that spotlight question is you even as a solopreneur, then are you're spotlighting, but then you're also demoting other items where maybe you woke up in the morning and writing that blog post seemed like the most important thing until you compared it in its intensity of possibility to the other things on your list. So you have to up 
swing some and you have to demote others. One of the tools that I like to use and suggest to people, we've helped people a lot with this during the pandemic when they're in this work from home chaos is called a paper anchor. And the idea is very simple. It's just any piece of paper that sits to the side of your computer and on it you write only three or five of the most important things you'll tackle that day. It is not a to-do list, it's an anchor. And the way that it works is you're between in email intervals, you're not going to touch, you're not going to sip, you have your notifications turned off, you probably find yourself sitting at your desk, you have absolutely no idea what to do. You just go to the anchor over and over and those three things you tell yourself are the only goals for the day. It it has um, an ability to direct us in a, in a different way than checklists that are based in technology. There's something that's frazzling to the brain about opening up OmniFocus and there's 37,000 things there. Uh, the anchor <laughs> is just so simple and it just keeps bringing us back to that emotionally uncomplicated paper over and over. And so that's a great place for people to start when they're trying to figure out how to remind themselves what's important each day. Yeah, I actually adopted a similar strategy a few months ago using a dry erase board, a really small one on my desk where mm -hmm. every day I write down the top three things. And, you know, this is the end of my workdate today. And you are the final number three. Aww. So talking to you is the very last piece. Yay. And I think that to your point, though, that's a really interesting and, and very accurate way to think about it, because in the middle of the busyness of the day, you know, you look at that list and go, well, these are the three things that I said was most important today. And assuming that I'm good at this, they are. And so because of that, like that's what, you know, you're right to the idea of it anchors me back to this is what matters. Let's go do these things. And I think that that's, it's refreshing because then you can ignore the less important, you know, things that seem urgent, which for me has been really great to filter out and distracting emails or texts or whatever the thing would come in, that these three things matter most. And you're also um, being subjected to an additional layer of insanity, which, you know, we call in the book hallucinated urgency. We kind of alluded to it a minute ago, but that sense of everything is on fire, everything is a fire drill, we're moving fast, we equally prioritize everything, it addles our mind and it, it just makes us incapable of seeing that level of prioritization. So I have another tool that listeners can play with to help with that. If you think about urgency, which is really an enormous driver of disorganization, because the faster you're moving and the more urgent everything feels, the less you can be methodical and thoughtful. So if you think about it, really, in real life, there are three types of urgency. Something can be not time sensitive, which we rarely acknowledge to ourselves or partners or clients or vendors that, oh, this thing I'm giving you is not time sensitive. It's a great thing to communicate. Second is it's tactically time sensitive. And that is where, okay, that's the spotlight. That's the yellow highlighter where speed to action is actually tied to a business result. But then there's also things that are emotionally time sensitive. And this is the tricky one that masquerades as tactically time sensitive. Emotionally time sensitive just means you really, really, really want to do it. Or you really feel mm. a craving or an anxiousness or a curiosity or maybe fear that's driving you to do something quickly. It will trick you into thinking that the thing is tactically time sensitive, but it's not. And so as you, once again, language gives you objectivity, you get to step back from things. There's so many times where I've begun to write an email to someone and just had to cop to, this is totally emotionally time sensitive. There's nothing in my business that is made different <laughs> by knowing if the Acme client has moved forward on their, you know, SOW. I will absolutely find that out in one week at the sales meeting where I know I will find out. And 
It's just because I am craving it. And that is not a good reason to bother other people or to take time to write the email in the first place. I mean, to that same degree, like how do you manage your own emotions towards your own projects on a given day? Like, let's say if it doesn't involve someone else, you're just trying to like wrap your own brain around your own desire to do certain things. Like I know for me, my drive to do certain things, it might be irrational and, and doesn't actually align at all to my priorities in my business. I just want to do them. Like, how do you like mix in things like this to say, like, I'm going to allow myself like an emotionally you know, charged activity today just to appease myself? Or, or how, how do you play with that kind of an ideal? It depends on whether your goal is for business to always be effective or sometimes to be fun. I think that if you have a passion project mm. or a craving or a desire that like a balanced plate with protein, you know, a little starch and veg, yes, you you put that in. But I, I'm so glad you asked about emotion. It's a time where... First of all, usually entrepreneurs uh, would not be an audience or even business people. It's not a it's not a comfortable place in the world of business to talk about emotion. But when you try to not have an emotion, it's like trying not to sneeze. It's it's <laughs> in there. And then what happens is we push it down. There's a story in the book is so beautiful. It's not a business story, but this woman that I was coaching, her husband died, and I met her three years after he died, and she said that for the entire three years in that period. She never took a shower for more than two minutes because she knew that if she ever had a pause where there was nothing to do, that the privacy and the steam and it would just all come and she she was afraid of that grief and she just kept moving and just kept busy. And that's what busy does, it keeps us numb. Numb is not good for clarity and focus. So we are in a time when people need to be able to take a minute for something else, for emotion to acknowledge this spectacular anxiety and fear and exhaustion and and to not only say yes i am tired or afraid but to go somewhere maybe and actually feel the feeling for me that looks like a giant cry for my husband that looks like punching a heavy bag whatever it is for you to get the emotional tension out has an effect that i can hardly put into words in terms of how powerful it is yeah, that's why I love the gym. I mean, that's, that's where I go to kind of get my own emotions out every day. It's great to do that. And I think I need it. And I know that it's, if I don't have it, yeah, those things, they build up and that comes out in bad ways. So it's good to have, yeah, a place to, a place to vent, really. The shame of the, the shame of emotion in the pandemic, though, has been a tricky, unique thing. When, when tragedy happens, people buckle down. A lot of us lost, we lost 100% of our revenue the first week. You know, a lot of people lost crazy amounts of business, their companies. There's a feeling that what hard workers do in an emergency is you double down hard and you work your butt off. And people did, and then they did, and then they did. But then it didn't uh, fade in the normal timeline of an emergency after an earthquake, after a flood. It just kept going. And so this sense of exhaustion and anxiety was almost something that people felt nervous to talk about. And and that's why I like talking about it. I like talking about how human it is and how necessary it is. It's better if you can get it out together and give each other tacit permission by your own honesty. It's a very important thing in this time of our lives. I totally agree. Uh, what else from the book we not covered today that you want to make sure we discuss? Oh, I love that question. I have so many, you know, there's in a book, there's kind of the leading characters and then there's the funny neighbors that nobody really remembers the name of the character actor, you know, the little guys that, so I, let me elevate one of the little guys. I, I think uh, there is one technique that I 
cannot stop talking about in its relevance to people, but it's a subtler one. It's not in the core of the work. It's called phone narration. And here's the premise. The premise is, I've been at this party where you're with a party or you're in a meeting, someone picks up their phone and they just disappear into their phone. And you have no idea what they're doing in the phone. They may not even realize consciously they've touched it. In the book, we tell a story about some clients I was sitting with. And I asked in a meeting, hey, how many regional managers do you have? And a few minutes later, the, the manager I was speaking to picked up his phone and just sort of zoned out in the meeting. And I kind of awkwardly continued. I didn't have any eye contact. I just was, I kept talking kind of. And I, in my head, I began to think less of him. How rude. I can't believe he's doing this. I don't really know whether to keep talking. And then a few minutes later, he said, 350 regional managers. Because he knew that he was doing something that was valuable, but I didn't. So that's where phone narration comes in. It's a technique when whenever you touch your digital device, especially around loved ones, but also at work, you loosely narrate the actions that you're taking. That can be at work, I'm, oh, hold on while I just look up that regional manager stat. That sentence would have saved all of our connection from being threatened. But you can be at home too with children and loved ones and you can say, let me just pull up maps to get us to the lake or I'm just texting back with grandma. And now that separation anxiety that we all feel when one of our loved ones disappears into the phone it can be alleviated. My very favorite part of it is how many times you pick up the phone and then because you're in the habit of narrating, you go to narrate, but you can't because you actually picked up the phone for no reason and you don't have, there's nothing to say <laughs> because you're just touching your darling and you don't know, um, you don't know what to say, but it's a wonderful technique to share with families. And you'll notice that if you start doing it very quickly, the people around you will catch you when you're not and they will say, can you narrate, please? I have no idea where you've gone or when you'll be back. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's that's a really good tactic. That's one I'm definitely going to steal for sure from this interview because I think that would that would save a lot of awkward social encounters that oh, I yeah. know that happen. Yeah, that, that's what that's fantastic there, um, Julia. This has been wonderful. There's a lot to get from this book. I'm really excited for you to have been on the show this week, and I want our listeners definitely to get a copy. So where can they learn more from you and get the book? They can obviously get the book anywhere. We're in pre-order. Uh, I think we air just after the, the book comes out. So that's really exciting. They can buy it anywhere that good books are sold. But if you want to know more about us and have some free resources, they can go to julietfunt.com. There we have prepared, even if they don't want to buy the book, they can take this wonderful assessment called the busyness test. And it will give them a lens and more clarity on the day-to-day -day activities that may be weighing them down and then teach them how to create more breathing room for creativity and strategic things. Okay, perfect. I'll be sure for that, uh, those links we listed this week in the show notes page. And uh, yeah, thanks again. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you. And for that great action step this week, carve out more white space in your calendar. Take Juliet's advice and never schedule anything back to back guarantee space between everything to give yourself a little buffer that you already know you need. JeffSanders.com slash 405 is the place to go to get the episode notes and also go to 5ammiracle.com to join the 5am club and get free email updates about the show. That's all I've got for you here on the 5am Miracle Podcast this week. Until next time, you have the power to change your life and the fun begins bright and early.
Hey, it's Jeff Sanders, and I'm here to tell you about Greg McEwen and his amazing show, The Greg McEwen Podcast, part of the Yap Media Network. Want to achieve more by doing less, all while avoiding burnout? You can design a life that really matters with Greg McEwen, author of New York Times bestsellers, Effortless and Essentialism. His mission is to help you advocate and negotiate your way to remarkable results. Every Tuesday, Greg discusses one key topic he finds interesting and valuable through the lens of the essentialist. Every Thursday, he invites thought leaders, entrepreneurs, celebrities, and people like you for inspired weekly conversations focused on learning how to do what matters first and do less but better. His content will stir your thoughts and spark inspiration and action. And his British accents, well, that's just the cherry on top. Subscribe to the Greg McEwen podcast today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform.